Tonight we're going to be talking about what's happening in our society. We're going to be looking at the fact that uh, many, many people are wondering, why is our society having the challenges that it is? Now, whenever I talk about these things, there's somebody that brings some statistics who tells me, you know, it's really not all that bad. Violent crime is down, theft is down, there's, uh, you know, murders are down in the United States. But even if you look at some of those numbers that appear to be down, there's still a general sense, isn't there, that there's something wrong in society? And it doesn't take statistics to tell us when we're seeing on the news played out every day some of the violence and uh, some of the crimes that we are. I mean, you know, we weren't designed by our maker to live in a time in a world where mothers are killing children, right? That's, there's something wrong when mothers are throwing their six-year-old off the bridge, as happened this week. There's something wrong when children take weapons to school and kill their family members. There's something wrong in society when this is repeated over and over, and it seems to be on the news and in our consciousness on an almost weekly basis. In my mind, at least, I think there's something wrong. There's something that, that is not the way God intended it to be. Now, what is that? What is the uh, problem? We're going to be talking about that this evening. But even if we don't have violent crimes, we look at some of the white-collar crime that does seem to be on the increase. We have scams like Bernie Madoff. We have Enron. We have, we have capitalism without any ethics or morality, which is basically greed, isn't it? Now, I'm, I'm an American. I believe in free enterprise. I believe in the system of capitalism. I spent uh, many, many months outside of the United States, even in the former Soviet Union, soon after communism fell, and I experienced some of what communism is. And I'm not, I'm not, belie I'm not a believer that that's the, uh, the type of economic system that we ought to have. But capitalism without any ethics turns to abuse and greed, doesn't it? And so we've had a couple centuries in America of, of prosperity and peace, and, and America has become arguably the greatest nation on earth, I believe, because of two principles, the principles of morality and ethics and the principles of capitalism and free enterprise. With either of those removed, we are, our nation's in trouble, and we're seeing this on an almost daily basis as we read the news. Um, people are not afraid of taking what does not belong to them if it means they can get rich quicker. Um, insider trading, um, Ponzi schemes, one thing after another. Now, you might say, well, the society is just going into, going into this state of decay and demoralization, but the Bible says in the book of Revelation that there is not going to be all doom and gloom at the end of times. Isn't that good news? Amen. I'm thankful that we have the book of Revelation and that it's not all bad news like many people think it is. People think it's just scary, it's just beasts and, and uh, destruction and all of these frightful things. But actually the book of Revelation holds a lot of good news. Have you seen good news in Revelation so far in a seminar? Have you noticed it with me as we've been looking at these pages? Yes. And the Bible says that even in the last days, there's going to be good news. If you look with me in the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, I want us to look here. We looked a couple nights ago at Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, the first angel's message 
called the everlasting gospel, remember? And why is it so important that we have this everlasting gospel, this, this, this first angel's message? Well, when we look at this passage, we remember that when the angel says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, he's presenting to us why and how we should live different lives. Lives that don't ask, how can I please my society, how can I fit in, be like everyone else, and, and not rock the boat, but, but, but lives that say, how can I please God? What can I do to honor Him? Fear, the fear of God is simply putting God's approval above man's approval, right? We saw that in the Scriptures. We unpacked that throughout the Bible, Revelation chapter 14, and we saw how this message is intended to prepare a people for what event? What event do we, did we see later in chapter 14? beginning about in verse 14. The second coming, right? One like the Son of Man sat upon a cloud, and the harvest of the earth was ripe, and he would, he, he would uh, be instructed that the, or informed that the harvest of the earth was ripe, and he would begin to reap. Now notice with me, just before this event, just before this event, it would be discouraging. It would be discouraging for me if just before the second coming, Revelation described a world that was completely consumed with selfishness, greed, and immorality. It would be discouraging for me if, if Revelation described, both just before the second coming, a world that was entirely rebelled against God. There was no shred or, 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 or even pretense of uh, worshiping God. It would be discouraging, wouldn't it be to you? But notice with me what it says. It's as if the John, John uh, the Revelator has envisioned this group of people pointed out to him. And notice how they're described in verse 12. Revelation 14 and verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Aha! The good news is that before Jesus comes a second time, there's going to be a group of people who are on this earth who are actually bucking the tide of lawlessness and immorality all around them. There's going to be a group of people who are, just like the first angel's message said, fearing God, giving glory to Him, glorifying Him in the way they're living their lives, in the way that they're going about their day-to-day -day activities. And notice with me, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of who? And the faith of who? So it says the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, I don't believe that we can... We, we have to split those two up. I believe Jesus is God, amen? But I think it's very interesting here that it's not, it's not the, I mean, John could have just easily, as easily heard, heard the words, here are they that keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus, right? But he's actually having it clarified to us that this isn't, this isn't something that's new, a new teaching of Jesus. This is, these are the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, Right? That, that, uh, that John sees are going to be characteristics of God's last day people. Well, how are people going to learn these principles of morality? How are people going to learn ethics? There was an interesting article not too long ago in the Wall Street Journal which actually asked the question, can ethics even be taught? <laughs> it's a very interesting thing. They were looking at, is there any point to us teaching ethics in business programs? Um, because it doesn't seem to be working. Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons why it's not working, friends. Because our ethics programs, our ethics classes, have become detached from any absolute morality. Our ethics are just based upon what is acceptable. 
And I've talked to numerous. I've never taken these business courses. Um, I have numerous friends and family members that have in, in undergraduate and graduate school. My brother's just now finishing a, an MBA. Um, I've talked to lawyers who have been there in graduate studies at, at Ivy League universities, have taken classes on ethics. And the ethics are based upon what is acceptable in your profession. That's what, is, that's what ethics are based upon. There's no teaching of an absolute standard, a moral standard of right and wrong that would be outside of, outside of humanity. Why? Well, because we've removed God. If you remove God, an, an external source of morality, from our consciousness, you remove, a, you remove the ability to teach that there's right and wrong from outside of humanity. And it's just what we, uh, what we do, we do what we think is right, we do what everyone else expects us to do, and that's our standard of ethics. And not only are we not seeing it taught in schools, but in many cases, I don't think our families are doing what they ought to, to teach our children. Parents often, honestly, they may not have any choice, but they often are working and out of the home a lot, and children are being schooled and entertained by, it used to be just the TV, now if you watch kids, what are they usually babysit, what are they given to babysit them? <laughs> it's the iPad or the smartphone or whatever it is, and that just keeps them occupied, and they're there from a very, very young age, and we expect Disney to teach them their morals. We expect the television programs and the video games and the other things to teach them morals. And are they going to? Are they likely to? Unfortunately, we ought to know the answer to that question. I think we do know the answer to that question. But it's very convenient. It's very easy. And so um, instead of being taught morals, they're actually being taught the opposite. They're being taught that it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, to say that someone else's some, that, that any type of activity or, or choice or lifestyle decision is wrong is hate speech, and it's, it's unacceptable. And yet, the Bible, I believe, absolutely does have standards. Shockingly enough to many people, not only are we having a challenge from our schools and from our homes, but I'm afraid even in our churches, in many cases, we're not teaching that there is a standard of right and wrong, or at least it's very unclear. It's unclear what sin is. We know Jesus is our Savior. I think that's pretty clear. I hope it's clear. No matter what church you would go to in America today, I would hope that's, that's clear. But our Savior from what? Our Savior from, from what? Matthew 121 says, You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. But what sin? You see, you'll find even in some churches, some Christian thought groups, that there's actually an idea that there's no such thing as a moral law anymore. The Ten Commandments have been done away with. Have you heard of that? I've heard of that, and we're going to look at some of those ideas tonight. You see, if we don't get morals from some external source, where are we going to get them from? Some will say, well, we just need to follow the light that's in us. Just be true to yourself. You know, we all have a, a, a road inside of our heart. We just need to get in touch with our inner selves. Have you heard that type of thinking? I've heard that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's growing in American Christianity today. Sometimes it even starts to sound a little bit transcendental and Eastern type of religion. That um, there's just, just get in touch with your inner self. 
I remember when I was a kid, and, and I had no idea that this was humanism that was being taught, but one of my, one of my teachers taught me a song that went like this. There is a road inside of me, inside of you there is one too. O wandering pilgrim in the dark, the road to Zion's in your heart. Well, it sounds good, right? There's a road inside of me, inside of you. The road to Zion's where? In your heart. And this is the way people have been taught to think for generations now, but I have to tell you something. That song is absolutely diametrically opposed to what the Bible teaches. There's not a road inside of me that leads to Zion, friends. There is a road in God's Word that leads to Zion. There's, there's truth that we can find in God's Word, but this is what the, the Bible says. Proverbs 16 and verse 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Does the Bible know more, or do I know more? The Bible knows more. Is the Bible God's Word, or am I just inspired? The Bible is God's Word. I hope this is very clear to you as I'm speaking tonight, that even if we are honest and sincere, which I hope we all are, we can't trust our own impressions or our own ideas, or our own getting in touch with our inner self. No, what we ought to trust, the one thing that we can trust, is God's Word. That's what we can trust as a standard of right and wrong. There's a way that seems right to me, to Chester Clark. There's a way that seems right to you, but that's not what's important. So often when I've studied the Bible with people, they've said, well, but I think this. I said, great, I'm glad you think that, but it really doesn't matter. Not to be disrespectful or anything, you understand. But what I think doesn't matter either, right? What I think is not what's important. It's what God thinks that's important, right? He's the one that we ought to be trying to say, okay, Lord, what is your will for my life? What is your truth for me to follow? That's what's important for me. So there's a way that seems right to a man, but the, it, its end is the way of death. This is a death knell, a death blow at the very foundation of what we call humanism. The idea that the good in man just needs to be developed. The idea that, that we naturally have good in us, that if we just follow the good in our heart, that we'll be all right, as long as we're sincere and honest. No, there's a way that seems right, but its end is, is death. There's one way presented in the Bible for, the, for the, the way of salvation. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is important. And I believe that God has given us a standard of morality, a standard which, by which he intended for the earth to be governed. And I want us to take a few minutes to look there this evening. We're going to take a few minutes to look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read through this passage, this short passage that was given on Mount Sinai. We, can, we, can, we refer to this as the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the moral law. Matthew, uh, Exodus chapter 20, I'm sorry. And we're going to begin with verse 1. Are you there? All right, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, which hath brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Stop right there. Were the, were the Israelites delivered from bondage already, yes or no? Yes, they had been delivered, right? They were no longer slaves in Egypt. And so God is going to give them His law, true or false? God gave them His law so that if they kept it, they would be freed from Egypt. 
That's not true, right? He, he, the preamble here is very important. Too often we forget the first couple verses here, the context of the Ten Commandments. It's not because they kept the Ten Commandments that God brought them out of Egypt. No, He brought them out of Egypt because He loved them and they were His people. And He's giving them their law because they are His people. Do you see the difference? So He says, and by the way, there's a spiritual application for us living in 2014, right? Jesus says, if the Son of Man shall make you free, you shall be what? free indeed. So Jesus came to set us free. We're not slaves in Egypt anymore, but we're slaves of what? What was, what was he talking about? Later on, that same verse, is he, uh, same chapter, he says, he that commits sin is the servant of sin or the slave of sin, but if the Son of Man sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so here you have this, this promise that, that Jesus wants to set us free from slavery, just like, or at least spiritually, just like Israel was set free from slavery physically, right? You see that? And now, notice with me, if, if, if that's the case, if we've accepted Jesus as our Savior from sin, and we've allowed Him to set us free from the condemnation of sin and the law, then this, this verse can be read and applied to me. If, if that's me, Jesus is saying to me, I am the Lord your God, which has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Can, can, can you see that? say that verse applies to you too, spiritually? Isn't that wonderful? And then you read these Ten Commandments differently. Notice, you shall have, the King James Version, we're used to hearing, right? Thou shalt have, what's the first commandment? No other gods before me. Now, in, 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 in uh, King James English, this just sounds like the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But if you read it just in common everyday language, if you were to say something like this, I am the, your, the Lord your God, I have brought you out of bondage, I have delivered you from slavery to sin, you will have no other gods before me. Do you understand how in common language you can hear that? It's not just a command, it's also a promise, isn't it? You hear that? You will have no other gods before me. Why? Because I brought you out of Egypt. Notice he goes on, he says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So here you have the first two commandments already. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They should not make any graven images to, uh, to be used in, in bowing down or worshiping, serving them. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor the maidservant nor the cattle nor the stranger that is within thy gates. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Verse 12, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Verse 13, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet uh, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbors, King James Version reads. So here you have, in a nutshell, in just a, in just a few verses, you have 10 precepts that, believe it or not, pretty much covers the entire spectrum of human activity. Isn't it amazing? I mean, there are lots of laws that have been made. Human governments have made hundreds of millions of laws as we look around the globe in all time. 
But, but God just needed 10 precepts to describe what was the, what was the standard of morality, of ethics, that he expected of his people. Now, God didn't just speak these words to Moses. We read in Exodus 31 and verse 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tables of stone inscribed by the what? By the very finger of God. Isn't that amazing? God's own finger wrote these, two, these testimonies on tables of stone, and they were given to Moses. These are, one of, these are some of the few passages of the Scripture that are verbally inspired. In other words, God wrote them himself word for word. He didn't just inspire the prophet, and the prophet writes them in their own language, their own tongue. But God actually wrote these according to Exodus 31. He writes them on tables of stone, and he gives them to Moses. You think God must have meant they were pretty important? Now, just a a little trivia question for those of you Bible scholars out there. Um, Where were those tablets placed after they were given to Moses? Do you think Moses put them under his pillow in his tent? They were put in the ark. Well, yeah, that's true. The first set got broken. But eventually, the tables of stone with the Ten Commandments, they were placed inside the ark underneath the mercy seat in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, right there underneath the Shekinah glory. Now, this is symbolic. It's all symbolic, isn't it? The sanctuary was all meant to be symbols of the real plan of salvation. Here you have the law of God underneath as if the foundation of the very throne of God, the very government of God, right there, uh, describing who He is and the way He operates. So, the question is, if this is taking place in Exodus chapter 20, after the Israelites have been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years, and Abraham and, and Israel and all the, the patriarchs and so forth. What about before that? Was there no law before that? Um, well, there's pretty good evidence that while this is the first time God gives it in written form, the law existed ahead of that. You remember we talked about the angels in heaven, right? Before Lucifer came along, they were all just doing just fine. They were happy serving God, right? Lucifer came along, and he became dissatisfied. He began to spread that dissatisfaction among his fellow angels, and the Bible records these amazing words. The war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You might ask the question, why were they cast out? Well, there was war, right? But what was the war over? How do you get on the other side? How do, you, how, do you, uh, how do you become one of the angels that are cast out? Well, Peter makes it pretty clear in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, For God did not spare the angels that what? That sinned. Now, is it possible for angels to sin? Evidently so, because that's what Peter says, right? God did not spare the angels that sinned. What did they do to sin? Well, they they rose up against the very government of God. And what must they have been in violation of? A definition of sin that's given to us by John, 1 John 3 and verse 4 says that sin is what? The transgression of the law. 
sin is breaking God's law. So evidently, all the way back there in heaven, there was a law, right? Because they had to have broken a law for there to have been sin. And Peter tells us that they were cast out of heaven. God did not spare the angels that sinned. Paul makes it even clearer in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, where no law is, there's no what? You can't, you can't be in violation of the law if there is no law, right? You can't break the law, transgress the law, if there is no law. So if there's no law, there's no transgression. Sin is a transgression of the law. Um, we don't have very many places where we could think of where there's actually no, no such thing as no law. Uh, although, um, you know, if you have spent any time in Europe at all, you probably will want, if you're, at least if you're a young man, you'll probably want to drive on the Autobahn. And what do we think of the Autobahn as? What do we think of when we... There's no speed limit, right? Well, there actually is speed limit on the Autobahn, but there are sections of the Autobahn which there are no speed limits, assuming it's dry and smooth and all those good things. Mostly today they have electronic speed limit signs so that um, if it's raining or, or if there's congestion or something, they'll actually have a speed limit. But then every once in a while, you'll get out on the open road and there's this slash across the speed limit sign and you just go as fast as you want to go and they can't give you a ticket. Yeah? You can't get a ticket where there's no law, right? You can't, you can't break the speed limit when there is no speed limit. And Paul says, where there's no law, there's, there's no transgression. It makes sense to me. So the angels that sinned were violating God's government, the principles of their government. They were rebelling against His law. They were cast out of heaven because they sinned. On the other hand, what about the the uh, two-thirds of the angels that stayed faithful to God, what does the psalmist say about them? Psalm 103 and verse 20. Psalm 103 and verse 20, this is what it says. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that what? Do his commandments. Yeah. The angels that are faithful to him, they obey the commandments. The angels that aren't faithful, that left with it, Lucifer, they sinned. They broke God's law. This is pretty, pretty clear, isn't it? It's, it's very clear what God is trying to say. Now, even before the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, God said about Abraham in Genesis 26 and verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. What statutes and laws? Now, we believe the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the five books of who? of Moses. They were written by Moses. Was Moses before Abraham or after Abraham? Moses was after Abraham. So in other words, what we're saying is we believe, Christians believe, that Abraham lived in a time when there was no written codified truth of God's word as we would call it today, right? The Bible had not been written. And yet, was Abraham aware of God's law? Evidently, the Bible says he kept it. And that's why God was going to bless him and make him the father of many nations. Not just because he kept the law, but because he did it by faith. And we'll talk about that a little more as we go on. And um, Genesis 39 and verse 9, evidently the law was in existence in Joseph's time because he said to Potiphar's wife, My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? sin against God. Now, the Ten Commandments had not been written out by this time. This is before um, the time of Moses. He wouldn't have had a, 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 a seventh commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery, but Joseph knew, didn't he? Joseph knew that this would be a violation of God's principles, 
And so Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? A few chapters before the law was given on Mount Sinai, we, we find the Israelites. They've spent 400 years in Egyptian slavery. They haven't had a good system of passing on the truth like the patriarchs did. Abraham taught Isaac, and Isaac taught Jacob, and Jacob taught his sons. But when they got into Egypt, here they were without much system or organization, and many of them forgot God's law. They forgot God's principles. And you remember the story in, in Exodus chapter 16, how God was giving them manna. You remember the story of manna? How God gave manna on, uh, on six days of the week, but there, weren't, weren't any, there wasn't any manna on the seventh day of the week. And uh, some people, even though even though God had said you shouldn't go looking for man on the seventh day, they went anyway, and this was God's response to that. He says in Exodus 16, verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? What commandments and laws? Is Exodus 16 before Exodus 20 or after? It's before. It's obvious, isn't it? That there should have been among God's people an understanding of God's law. It was expected. Even though it wasn't codified or written, it was there. And uh, God here is asking, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? In fact, Jesus um, taught that if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. And so we're going to look this, this, this evening at how Jesus' teaching of the law didn't come to do away with the law, but actually to build it up, to put it in its rightful place. Now, we have a problem as human beings. I've talked about it on a number of occasions here already in the Unlocking Prophecy series. We have a problem, and that problem is that we try to do things in order to earn God's favor. That's a human problem. And um, we've talked about some of the false religions that do that, pilgrimages and walking on beds of coals and sleeping on nails and all the rest of the things that people try to do to earn favor, to curry favor with their gods. Christians can fall into the same trap because it's a human nature problem. We want to get some credit for our holiness or our goodness or somehow feel that we've had a part to play in our salvation. And yet, the Bible says that salvation is a gift from Jesus Christ. It's a gift from Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus would put the law in its rightful place, I want to be very, very clear, explicitly clear this evening, Jesus would absolutely categorically deny that the law is any part of the, a means to our salvation. But yet he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What does he mean by that? How can we understand how the law fits into this bigger picture? You see, I believe that the Bible does not disagree with itself. If one passage seems to be disagreeing with another passage, the problem is in my understanding, not in the Bible. And so I need to find an understanding, an understanding of God, understanding of His character, understanding of His government, understanding of His truth that allows all of the Bible to be able to, be able to speak without having any of it in conflict. That's the challenge as a Bible student. And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. Very interesting. He quotes from the Old Testament. Of course, whenever Jesus quoted the Scripture, He's quoting from the Old Testament, right? But He quoted a passage here from the Old Testament that many people think is a New Testament teaching. It's not. Jesus was trying to harmonize truth because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He's the same God in the Old Testament as He is in the New Testament. Oh, we understand Him differently. We see in different situations. We, we, we see different views of God. 
but he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 22. He's quoting actually from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses. He's quoting, you shall love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? With all your mind. He goes on in verse 38 and he says, this is the first and great commandment. Now many people say, see, Jesus did away with the ten and gave us only two. And um, we're going to look at that. But actually, Jesus wasn't, do, Jesus wasn't bringing us anything new. You understand that? That's a, he was quoting verbatim in his, in his language. He was, he was usually quoted from what we call the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Bible that he must have studied because he quotes it almost verbatim over and over again in his, in his uh, discourses. He quotes from the, from the Septuagint or from the, from, the, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul your mind. This is the first commandment. The next verse, verse 39, he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, also from the writings of Moses. He's quoting verbatim, you shall love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, some people would say, well, okay, that means since he's given, he's given us two great commandments, and on these two hang all the law and the prophets, that means that somehow these two have superseded or done away with the ten. Have you ever heard that kind of idea? I've heard that idea. I don't know how common it is, but I have heard that idea. And to me, that it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite do justice to what Jesus is saying here. Would you say, as a, after reading those four verses, would you say that Jesus gave us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, um, soul, mind. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And after giving us those two pivotal great commandments, he does away with all prophets. You wouldn't conclude that, would you? It just doesn't make any sense. That's not what he's trying to say at all. He says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. When You have to understand that phrase. When you see that phrase in the New Testament, it's referring it in the Hebrew mind, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. The law were the five books of Moses. The prophets were the rest of the Old Testament, basically. The, uh, you remember the Bible says on the road to Emmaus, Jesus gives his disciples that Bible study, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he opened to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself, right? And so in the Hebrew mind, when they said the law and the prophets, they were talking about the entire Old Testament scriptures, the books of Moses, the law, and the prophets being the rest of the inspired writings. And so here Jesus is saying, look, you want to summarize everything in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, you want to summarize it all? I can make it really simple for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's it. Very simple. You don't, need, you don't need to get complicated. It's very simple. Two things. Love, your, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors, yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. We don't, we don't believe it does away with the rest, but it, it's the foundation for all of them. Now, Jesus is saying that these two are the foundational, are foundational to all right living. Let's illustrate it this way. If we have love to God in our heart, we will make God number one in our lives, right? That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, right? 
And so if God is, if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we will have Him as number one in our lives. Our worship will be reserved for Him alone. We're not going to make other gods. We're not going to bow down to them. We're not going to have, we're not going to have that, that, uh, that distraction of other things that we make as important in our lives. Um, third, we will respect and reverence His holy name. And fourth, we will uh, want to spend Sabbath time with Him each week. That's the fourth commandment. Excuse my numbers. They somehow got jumbled there on that slide. Fifth, notice with me, that, that, uh, that first commandment summarizes the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, right? The love to man summarizes the last six commandments. Number five, we'll respect and honor our parents. Number six, we'll value life, preserve morality. That one got messed up too. We'll respect others' property, be honest with each other, and not covet what we don't have. So you'll see, you see what happens when we, when we have a uh, love for God and love for man, these Ten Commandments fall right into place. Does that make sense? Do you understand how the Ten Commandments are summarized by loving God supremely and loving our neighbor as ourself? And so Paul, uh, Paul would summarize it this way in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. Love does no, no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. As, which, which of the two commandments is he talking about there in this passage? The second one, right? Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And he says love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And it doesn't matter whether that neighbor is your parents, you're going to honor them. If it's your, that neighbor is your, um, is your employer, you're going to not steal from them, right? That, employ, that neighbor may be your spouse, you're going to be faithful to them. That neighbor may be someone down your street, you're not going to wish you had their car or house or whatever it is, you understand. And that's the foundation of the law, is love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Now, the laws are not meant to restrict our happiness, but to keep us safe. Um, some people think that laws are an onerous burden. Well, if you think that way, I would just invite you to spend some time in the world, uh, some places in the world, where there aren't good laws or enforcement of laws. And then you find out that laws are actually a way of giving us freedom. You know, I've often used this illustration when I'm trying to explain to some people in other parts of the world. I remember one time I was in, in uh, Lagos, Nigeria. And Lagos is one of those parts of the world where, um, I mean, I haven't been there for a few years, so it may be better now, but um, back when I first went there, it was, it, was, it was a pretty scary place, honestly. It's one of the few places I've been in the world where I was afraid for my safety. I feared. Um, and the stories would r run wild. The State Department would tell Americans they shouldn't be there. Um, sometimes, much to my mother's dis uh, distress, I would decide if God calls me someplace, I'm going, even if the State Department doesn't agree that God's called me there. And um, I remember one time I was in Lagos, and on the way in, on the, on the flight in, um, I was sitting next to a person from Lagos, and he was telling me, where are you staying, where are you going? You know you need to be really, really careful. This is Lagos. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I've traveled a bit, you know. Uh, not much at that point. This was, this, I was probably 22 years old at the time. And um, 
And he said, no, you, seriously, if you get in trouble, you're in trouble. Like, you, you don't get any help. I said, well, there aren't police? Yeah, but the police are more dangerous than the criminals. I said, what? You know, from America, we don't have that way of thinking. We just don't, we don't think that way. And um, he said, yeah, the, 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 uh, the, the organized crime, they'll come and they'll steal what you have, but after they take, you know, most of what you have, they'll protect you. It's sort of like, you know... But the police, they'll take everything you have and kill you. I'm like, you're kidding. He's like, no. He's just, just like a month ago, a, a someone from Lagos arrived at the international airport, and, and um, a policeman ended up picking him up and took him, took all of his things, killed him, left him. But the man that was killed by the police was a relative of a high-ranking general in the army. And... They had for weeks in Lego street battles between the army and the police because the army was determined to avenge the police for the killing of this relative of the general. This is Lagos. I'm like, great. So they took us to this place. We didn't spend a few, very long there, but one night I was going to be staying, it was actually two or three nights we were staying in Lagos, and they took me to this place that was owned by an American businessman, actually from Atlanta, and... Um, we, they opened a big, there's a tall wall around the compound, and I mean, there are walls around all the compounds, right? But, and this one had a tall wall and gates, they, and it was night, they, they opened the gate, we drove in, and, and they closed the gate, and, and then we, they took us through, every flight of stairs had a locked door on it. By the time we got to our apartment, where we were staying for two or three days, we had gone through eight locked doors, eight locked doors. And they said, stay away from the windows. We don't want anyone to know you're here because uh, last year, a group of armed robbers climbed up onto the roof and rappelled down, found windows that were open, and still robbed the place. Eight locked doors. Now, I grew up in Arkansas where we would go on vacation for a few weeks and never lock our house. I mean, that's... Our neighbors were coming over to water the plants and feed the animals and everything else, you know? I mean, why would you lock it? <laughs> to this day, if you were to go outside, my, dad, my dad's a dentist in a little town of Arkansas, in Arkansas where I live, if lived, grew up. Um, to this day, if you were to go out into, into his car in front of his dental office, the keys are in it. <laughs> At their house. At night, the doors are open, the keys are in the car. Still today. Now, please, I'm not giving you an address or anything like that, but <laughs> my, point is simply that, my point is simply that when you have a law and law abiding, you have freedom. Where you don't have law, you have bondage. God did not intend the law to be something that restricted our freedom. He intended it to be something that unleashed our freedom. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. I want you to see this in James, James chapter 2. I love the way James calls it. And it's, it's as if James was just thinking about what I'm thinking about just now. When he says in James chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 8. James chapter 2 and verse 8, are you there? All right. This is what it says. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. Now here James, or, or, or uh, James, yes, James is, you might be tempted to think James is quoting Jesus, but he's actually quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, because he's, he's qu- quoting scripture here, and he says, you shall love your neighbors yourself, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Now did James think because that Leviticus said you shall love the, the, your neighbors yourself, that there were no other commandments? You think that's what James thought? Look at the next verse. He says, For whosoever shall offend the whole law, shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, what does he say? Do not commit adultery. Also said, do not kill. What's he quoting now? Does James see the Ten Commandments in Leviticus 19.18 as being in contrast to each other? Or they're the same thing. You understand? You understand what James is saying? He goes on, he says, Now if you commit no adultery, but kill, you're transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the, what does he call it? Law of liberty. liberty. Isn't that interesting? The law of liberty. The law of liberty. And um, I think of the law sort of like a guardrail. I've been in a few places like this. Maybe you have too. Where... You really wish there were a guardrail there. Have you ever been there? We, I can just hear my mom now sitting in the front seat grasping her, her, her hand rests and saying, Honey, keep your eyes on the road while we're in some mountain pass in Alaska or something. He's looking off over the edge and the car's drifting closer and closer. And no. I remember in, in the mountains of Italy one time, I was in the back of a van, and we were on a road similar to this. It wasn't quite as bad. This is in Afghanistan, I believe. But um, in Italy, in the, uh, in, the, in the Alps, the Cadian Alps, and there was, a, we, there was a very, very steep hill, and we were going down this steep hill, and at the bottom of the steep hill, there was a 90-degree turn, and it was about a 1,000-foot drop-off, and it's gravel. And I'm thinking, if, if he... If he locks up his brakes and we lose steering, we're going right over the edge. And there's nothing I can do about it. Are guardrails good to have? Yes, they're good to have. I, I appreciate guardrails. Even if sometimes we manage to... Yeah, I'm not sure how this happened, but... Um, this guy actually went onto the guardrail backwards from the other end, and he emerged unscathed. That's the best part of the story. This was in South Africa. But the point of the guardrail is to keep us safe, right? The point of the guardrail is to keep us on the road, and that's the purpose of God's law. God's law is given to us as a guardrail to keep us safe. In fact, this is what Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is what God says. This isn't Moses speaking, this is God speaking. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me. Remember the fear of God? Yeah, that they would care more about what I think than what their neighbors, the Philistines, or whoever else thinks. If, the, if there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it might be what? What does it say? Well, that it might be well with them. I love the way God says it. And with their children forever. Oh, God wants it to be well for us. The law is not there to punish us, to restrict us, to keep us from having fun. The law is there that it might be well with us forever. There's another reason, however, that God gave man his law. 
He says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul tells us that the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. He continues on in chapter 7 and verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. What law is he quoting here? The Ten Commandment law, right? He says, look, the point of this law is to save me. Is that what he says? Is the law to save him? No, the law is to point out his what? Sin. It's to tell us where the edge of the road is, right? It's to tell us what is, what is morally acceptable and what's not morally acceptable. The law of God, my friends, and I, I, I plead with you to give this careful thought, I believe the law of God is the external standard of morality and ethics that our country and our society desperately needs. It's God saying, I have a standard of right and wrong. I'll tell you what it is. And he gives it to us in simple terms. So Paul says, without the law, there's no knowledge of sin. I would not have known sin. It would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. The law is like a mirror that tells us when we have a problem. When I look in the law of God, I see that I, Chester Clark, am a sinner. Now that does not save me, does it? But it does, it does point out to me my need for a Savior. The law properly understood does not save me but it points me to my Savior. You see, when you look in the mirror, and you, I like to tinker and work with my hands and stuff, so sometimes I come in and I've, I've been underneath the car or something, and I have, you know, a car with lots of, lots of experience, so I have to work on it a fair bit, it seems, and, and maybe I'm changing the oil or something, and I get a big old smudge on my face. Well, I look in the mirror, and what do you think? When I see that oil on my face in the mirror, you think I, I just, you know, cozy on up to the mirror and start trying to wipe it off? Doesn't the mirror have its rightful place? It's not to clean my face, is it? No. The mirror can't cleanse me. The mirror points out the problem. And God's law is like a mirror. In fact, James, if you can look at that on your own, in your own time, James chapter 1, he talks about, about the law as being a mirror. That's, it, that we look at and we see our true condition. And he warns us not to look and go away and forget. Um, not to be a forgetful hearer. And so, looking at the mirror won't clean, cleanse me. Breaking the mirror, getting rid of the mirror, <laughs> well, that would... Actually, it's not a bad idea, is it? If we just got rid of all mirrors. <laughs> well, but then we'd see other people, wouldn't we? Yeah. Getting rid of the mirror doesn't solve the problem either. The only thing that solves the problem is finding someone, somebody, that can cleanse that sin, forgive that sin in my heart and in my life. And thankfully, the law, when it's rightfully understood, points me to someone who can. Because there is a Savior. There is grace that is greater than all of my sin. Aren't you, aren't you glad for that tonight? Aren't you glad that there's salvation from sin? It's not the law. It has its place, but the law cannot save us. Some people ask me, though, the question, aren't we under grace so that we don't have to keep the law? Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at about two more passages here, and um, then we're going to be wrapped up here for this evening. Ephesians chapter 2. I love the way Paul describes it here. This is a classic. And 
He talks here, we're going to look at some other passages as well. Hebrews chapter 2, I mean Ephesians chapter 2, and beginning with verse 8, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul knew we have this problem, don't we? We have this problem of selfishness and trying to earn our salvation. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So this is the way Paul describes it. He says, look, the law shows me my problem. Jesus saves me by his grace as a result of nothing that I've done. And he recreates in my life a new creature, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now the law is, is that guardrail that helps me walk in Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans chapter 6, let's look there real quickly. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2 and then also verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 6, we have to look quickly here, these last couple passages. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's almost as if he thought, somebody's going to read my treatise on grace and salvation and say, well, then I don't have to worry about sinning. I can just break the law as much as I want. I can live as I please. Heaven's my home. He almost preempted that, didn't he? When he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Skip down to verse 14. For sin shall not have what? Dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, when, you're un, when, you're, when sin has dominion over you, you are under the law. Do you understand how that works? It's very simple. When sin has dominion over you, you are going to be not under the law, or you're not going to be under grace, you're going to be under the law. I think I just lost a battery. So, when, when sin... When, when sin has dominion over you, you're under the law and not under grace. But now we're not under the law, we're under grace. No, you're not. He says, verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. We have been set free from the law, right? If, we, if, if, if the sin has dominion over us and Jesus came to set us free, then once he set us free, we no longer have sin having dominion over us. Is that pretty simple? Is that clear? In that case, we're no longer condemned by God's law because we've been forgiven by His grace. Now, I want to illustrate it this way. Suppose I, maybe I shouldn't use this in first person. It sounds, sounds terrible to even think about it. Suppose somebody is convicted for killing a police officer. Now, we've seen recently up in Pennsylvania how determined the law enforcement is when one of their own has been gunned down, right? And... Um, so, suppose this fellow, was it Eric Klein or whatever his name was, suppose he's captured, he's given the death penalty, he's on death row, and for some strange reason, someone asks for him to be pardoned. Now, on death row, he's under the law, isn't he? I mean, they put him in the, in the dead officer's handcuffs. They rode him back to the same barracks where he shot the guy in the dead officer's cop car. Like, he was under the law. And uh, suppose the governor of the state, or the president of the United States, probably the only two people that could do it, decided they were going to pardon 
this cop killer. Does he deserve it? No. So we would have to agree that if he was pardoned, it would be grace, unmerited favor, right? Suppose he gets a clear pardon. His, his crimes are completely expunged. His record is wiped clean. To make it realistic, I mean, the governor or the president would have to die in his place in the electric chair, right? That's what Jesus did for us. But just in our justice system, suppose he was pardoned. He walked out of prison a free man. He's no longer under the law, right? Now he's under what? So now, now that I've left prison behind, now that I'm under the law, under grace, I can go kill as many policemen as I want. Does that make sense? No, in fact, because I'm under grace, not under the law, I have all the more motivation and reason to keep the law, don't I? To respect the law, to appreciate the law. You see, when Jesus died on Calvary's tree, he really affirmed that God's law was so unchanging that he had to die instead of me dying. I mean, if, if he could just change the law, he could have just done that, and then no one would have to die, right? But when Jesus died, he confirmed the law. The second question, our last question, wasn't the moral law nailed to the cross? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Real quickly here, it's our last passage. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. And we see here, we see here what uh, Paul again is writing. And this is, a pas- this is a question that I have quite frequently. Wasn't the moral law nailed to the cross? I can assure you one thing, that when Jesus died on the cross, it should, it should put an end to any of me trying to earn my own salvation, right? It should put an end to me thinking that, that my sin doesn't matter. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, this is what it says. Blotting out the ordin- handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Look with me just a few verses earlier. Look with me beginning with verse 13, if we look at the context here. Um, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all his trespasses. Who is Paul talking to in Colossians chapter 2? You've been forgiven all your trespasses, which means you're a believer in Jesus Christ, right? So he's talking to Christians, but is he talking to Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians? They're Gentile Christians because he says you and the uncircumcision of your flesh, right? So he's talking to the the Gentile Christians who are believers in Jesus, and he says you have, he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphantly, triumphing over them in it. In the context, when we read Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, he's talking about Gentiles now being accepted into the fellowship of faith, isn't he? He's talking about even people who are uncircumcised. Now, what law would have been against the uncircumcised being a part of the faith? Was it the Ten Commandments? Do you read about circumcision in the Ten Commandments? Anything? We read them, right? All ten of them. Anything about circumcision there? Nothing at all. What, what was 
preventing before Jesus' time, what was preventing before Jesus died on the cross, Gentiles from being a part truly of the body of Christ, was the ceremonial law, which required circumcision, required uh, observance of the feasts and festivals and so forth. And Jesus, Jesus, when Jesus is nailed to that cross, he is the real fulfillment of that whole system of ceremonies and sacrifices that pointed forward to Jesus. Notice with me, notice with me the next verse, last one. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. What law? Do the Ten Commandments talk about meat and drink? Do they talk about new moons and, and holy days and Sabbath days, plural? No, but in the, in the ceremonial law, all of the different festivals were also Sabbaths, the Bible called them in the Old Testament. There were multiple Sabbath days, and Paul's clearly here talking about the ceremonial law of sacrifices and offerings and festivals that pointed forward to Jesus. They no longer are binding upon us as Christians because Jesus, the real Lamb of God, has died upon the cross. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to keep, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. The Ten Commandments are not against us, therefore our good. And that's the difference between the ceremonial law and the, the, um, the, the moral law. So in the last days, in God's last day, just before He returns again, the book of Revelation describes a people, and notice with me something consistently throughout this description. Revelation 12, 17, very quickly, we'll read them here on the screen. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the what? Commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 14, 12, we read earlier, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. One more, Revelation 22 and verse 14. Blessed are those who what? Do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You see, Jesus, Jesus came to this earth because I broke His law. He came to the Garden of Gethsemane and He could have said, you know, Chester should just die for that law breaking himself. And as he gripped that cold ground and the Bible records that drops of blood oozed out of his pores, he made the decision that he would carry my cross, that he would go all the way to Calvary, that he would allow himself to die in my place because I, the lawbreaker, so that I, the lawbreaker, might be reunited with him throughout all of eternity. Oh, friends, what grace. What a gift that God has given to us. What an opportunity we have to accept that gift and to live, not obeying Him so that He'll love us. Look, He already loved us so much. But simply seeking to please Him because He's put His fear in our hearts. That's what I want to do tonight. How about you? You want to have that desire in your heart to be a God, among God's last day people described as keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, tonight we just thank you that you've given us this chance to spend time looking at a description in the book of Revelation of what it will be like. There's going to be a lot of 
a lot of lawlessness. You've said it would be like it was in the days of Noah. But yet you've also given us, we just read three passages where you described in the last days, you just described there will be a group of people who allow you to write your law in their hearts. Oh, Father, thank you for this. Thank you for that promise. Thank you that you loved us so much that you came and bore our penalty of the law, that you pardoned us with your own blood. Help us to leave that that, uh, bondage of sin behind and to walk in newness of life, a new creature created unto Christ Jesus to good works. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.